All right. So anyway, uh, let's let's get to spiritual things. Yeah. All right. Y'all go ahead and turn to, to Nehemiah 13. Uh, we're, we're coming to an end of our of our Raising Dry Bones series. Um, and uh, it, it's uh, it's been this is the 16th week. Um, and hopefully you've grown as much as I have through this series. But uh, we're going to close it out today as we, uh, as we wrap up uh, Nehemiah. I'm going to start, I want to ask you, how many of you, when, it's not a lot of us in here, I know a lot of us, uh, a lot of folks are camping this weekend, so um, they'll just have to, to catch up, but uh, how many of us in here have, have made, a, made a promise before? Raise your hand. How many, how, how many have made a promise? Everybody. We've all, we've all made promises, right? So how many of you have made a promise and broken a promise? Raise your hand. That's right. Every one of us. We've all made promises, but we've also all broken promises. Now, we don't, let me, let me um, explain why we make promises and then break them. We don't, we don't break all of them. Uh, we, we do keep some promises, but we break some of them too. And the first reason we, we break our promises is because our hearts are crooked, right? Our hearts are crooked. And the Bible talks about our hearts being sinful. And uh, when you have a sinful heart, then you're going to break your promises. And the second reason that we break our promises is because there are times where we're not strong enough or smart enough to keep our promises. That's the truth. Even, even with the best intention, sometimes our plans are going to fall by the wayside. Sometimes we, we, we will blatantly break our promises, but then there are other times where we kind of just drift away slowly, kind of like a, a tire going flat, just, just a little at a time. Uh, moral failure, spiritual decline go hand in hand, and they're both kind of like a, a flat tire. Most tires don't go flat because of a blowout. Right, most tires go flat because they have leaked air over time slowly. That's right. Sometimes you don't even know you're going flat or you've got a flat until the uh, car gets a little too hard to steer. All right. So in our text today, uh, Nehemiah 13, we're going to come face to face with some some backsliders, uh, those who've uh, who've let the air leak out in their in their spiritual lives uh, over a uh, yeah everything all right there, morning. You good? Okay. <laughs> well, that's that's good. So anyway, these people are are, are backsliders, but uh, they've let this air, so to speak, uh, uh, it, it's leaked out of their spiritual lives slowly over time. So we talk about backslide. The the definition, the uh, the dictionary definition, would define backslide this way: to relapse into bad habits, sinful behavior, or undesirable activities. Now, you think with what we've gone through and what we've been through and what we've built on from chapter 1 to now in Nehemiah, you'd think this last chapter would give us some big encouraging stories, but it doesn't. Honestly, there's not a happy ending here. Within a short period of time, the believers, they went spiritually flat and they resumed and returned to their old ways of doing things, which was violating God's laws and conforming to the world. And that leads us to, a, to, the, to the, one of the major reasons for this entire book of Nehemiah, and that's good beginnings don't necessarily guarantee happy endings. Good beginnings don't necessarily guarantee happy endings. So let's all stand up and read our text. Uh, let's all stand to honor the holy and perfect word of God, Nehemiah 
chapter 13. And we're going to do something different that we hadn't done in weeks. I'm going to read it this week. So y'all pray as I'm reading. Nehemiah chapter 13 will start in, uh, start in verse 1. At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them, but our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of, of the house of our God. He, ha- he was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they had, pr- where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the, the articles of the articles and the tenths of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a house in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified, and I had the articles of the house of God restored there, along with the grain offering and frankincense. I also found out that because of the portions up for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his given had gone back to his own field. Therefore I rebuked the officials, saying, Why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine, and oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelmiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites with Hanan son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, to assist them because they, they, they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys, along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyranians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath day to the people in Ju- of Judah in Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you were doing profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all of this disaster on us and on the city? And now you're rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. When shadows began to fall on the gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the gates be closed and not open until after the Sabbath. I posted some of the men at the gates so that no gods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside of Jerusalem, but I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion in keeping with your abundant faithful love. 
In those days, also, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, half of their children speaking the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of the men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourself. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew into sin, but foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all of this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Johada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, had become son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God with favor. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much for what you have done within our body the last 16 weeks. I know we still sit here small in number, but Lord, as we, as we embark upon rebuilding Crossway, we remember the words of Jesus where he says, I will build my church. Now we as humans, we look at our church and we look at, and we think God will build us large in number. But when he says, I will build my church, he doesn't just mean in number, Lord. He means also spiritually. And he has built us spiritually these last 16 weeks. He has grown uh, each and every one of us and taken us from the place we were to the place we are now, which is closer to where he wants us to be. And so, Father, as we go forward after this day and through this day, I pray that all of us have a new heart. Uh, I pray a fire has been kindled in our hearts, and I pray that the crossway will now reap the fruit of its labor, Lord, as we start to get serious about rebuilding this body of believers. Lord, thank you for what you've done in our lives. I ask you to bless this time now as we come to your word. Lord, I ask you to illuminate our hearts to the truth this morning so that we may hear from you. Take Jimmy behind the woodshed. You don't need me this morning, Lord. We need to hear from you, and we want to hear from you this morning. I I ask that your Holy Spirit would would fill each and every one of us believers amongst us this morning, and I I pray the Holy Spirit would go a work amongst any unbelievers that are here amongst us this morning. We love you. We give you all honor, all praise, and above everything else, the one thing that you require, and that's all of the glory. It's in Jesus' holy, beautiful, and righteous name that we pray. And everybody said... All right, so before we jump in uh, to this chapter, I want to give you some background just to kind of bring us up to where we're at. First, uh, Nehemiah, at the end of chapter 12, he'd gone back to Persia, right? He had, he had left and gone back at the end of chapter 12. Uh, we know from chapter 1 and from starting this book that he had, a, he had a good job. He was working for the king, right? He was living with the king in, in, in the kingdom. He was... Uh, had a great job working for the king, but, but he sensed the calling of God. He sensed God's calling, so he requested and he received permission uh, to lead a team to rebuild the walls that were surrounding Jerusalem. So the king appointed him governor 
and uh, he served 12 years in that position. And as governor, he, 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 um, he dealt with enemies, he organized the people, he rebuilt the wall in Jerusalem, and he set up that infrastructure for the repopulation of the city. And then last week, as we saw, they celebrated the dedication of the wall and the temple. And so after all of that was done, after he was done with all of that, he left. He left and returned back to Persia, uh, back to Susa, and he returned back to his old job with the king. And, and I don't know how long he stayed after he went back. Uh, most commentators that I read uh, said that uh, it, it was several years that he stayed, and then he requested another leave of absence and went back to Jerusalem. Chapter 13 um, tells us what he discovered when he went back, what he found when he returned. And I tell you, I can't imagine what he must have been feeling. We, we, as we've been through these last 12 chapters and saw what he, what he went into, the desolation and the destruction of Jerusalem, the holy city, right, the, the, the one that housed the temple, uh, God's city, as he, as he goes there and he sees the destruction, he rebuilds it and spends this time rebuilding and then to go back several years later and to see what we've just read in chapter 13, I can only imagine what he must have been feeling because when he left uh, last week, chapter, chapter 12, verse 43 says that the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. These same people, though, these same people had violated the covenant that they had publicly signed. They publicly signed a covenant in chapter 9, and so he came in, Nehemiah came in mad. He came in hot, right? He hit them hard, and what he was doing was attempting to jar Jerusalem out of their compromise. They had begun to compromise with the world and go back to their old way of doing things. And so he came in, and he, he didn't mince any words. There's a, uh, also a, a literary link um, between chapter 10 and chapter 13. There's, there's a link. On chapter 10, uh, we went over this. We talked about this. The people made four promises. They made four vows. Uh, and so we talked about those. Uh, first thing they did, they, they pledged to submit to God's word. Right? They vowed to live separate from the world. They promised to keep the Sabbath, and then they agreed to support God's work financially. And uh, we get here to chapter 13, all those promises, all those vows have now been broken. And that should remind us, that should be a huge reminder for every one of us in here that even the most spiritual person or the, or the best church, the biggest church, we can all find ourselves in this same place if we give way and accommodate the pressures of the world. At the, at the dedication in chapter 12, the builders celebrated their big moral victory over, over secularism and, and materialism. But obviously, as we see, they'd won some battles, but they hadn't won the war. So uh, Nehemiah 13 here is best understood in light of chapter 10. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow the same outline that we, that we went through in chapter 10. It's, 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 it goes, they go hand in hand. So as we look carefully at each one of these four broken promises, um, I want you to, to remember what we went over in chapter 10 and, the, and how they correlate together. So the first broken promise, our first point, is the submission promise. The submission promise. The promises in chapter 10 started with an, with an affirmation of the Word of God. Chapter 10, verse 29 says, To follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to carefully obey all of the commands, ordinances, and statutes of Yahweh our Lord. Nehemiah 13, verse 1, we see that uh, what we see is an explanation of how careless Israel had been about what God had said concerning the purity of their worship. It says, At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. 
The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. So we see that, 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 that Scripture was read publicly just like it had, had been prior. And so when it was, the people realized how careless they had been with their loyalty to God. They listened to Scripture. As they listened to the Scripture, they, they remembered what happened when their ancestors were just on the edge of the promised land. The Ammonite sin was, was, was a sin of omission, and they hadn't met the Israelites with food and water, uh, the text says. The Moabite sin was a sin of commission because they hired Balaam to, to call down a curse on the Israelites. So, so the Ammonites was a sin of omission. The, uh, the Moabite sin was one of commission. And we don't have time to get into a, a lot of detail, but if you'll make this notation and go back and read it later, Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 to 5, you'll, you'll get a better understanding of what happened. The bottom line is that the Moabites and the, and the Ammonites were infamous for sneaking into Israel and watering down their worship. That's what they were notorious for. But here's the good news. When, when the Israelites heard God's word, when they heard what God's word said, they obeyed it. Amen? Amen. When they heard God's word, they obeyed it. Look at verse 3. It says, when they heard the law, they separated all of those mixed descent from Israel. All of those of mixed descent from Israel. That's application for us, folks. It is. We, we, we can admit we fall short. Every one of us can admit we fall short, right? We break our promises. We, we, we mess up. We don't always follow what we know to be true and what we know to be right. And it seems to me that we have two choices. We can continue down a path and pattern of disobedience, or we can stop what we've been doing and determine to live our lives how God has determined that we should live our lives. See, the Christian life is a, is a series of beginnings, is it not? It's a series of new beginnings. It's never too late to start taking seriously the Word of God. And if we're ever going to grow spiritually, we're going to have to take the Word of God seriously. Point blank, it is number one in a Christian's life is the Word of God. That's how he speaks to us today. That's how we know him and get closer to him is through his word. If we neglect his word, we're neglecting him. So if there's something you've been putting off, uh, a decision that you need to make, I bet uh, some of you in here may even have doubts about what God wants you to do with your life. Maybe you know what he wants you to do, but you doubt it because you're scared. You know it's going to be hard. Listen, if God's asking you to do something, He's the one that's going to take care of all the details. You don't have to worry about trying to figure it out or how it molds or fits into your life or your plans. He's going to figure it out for you. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. That's the submission promise. The submission promise. Here's our next one. Let's look at the separation promise. The separation promise. So they broke their, their promise to submit to God's word. They decided, though, to, to listen again and do what God says. Now, this next promise they broke was the promise to live separate from the world, to be separate from the world. They ignored that vow in two ways. The first way we're going to look at was that they allowed an enemy intruder into the camp. They allowed an enemy intruder into the camp. Verses 4 to 9, we, we, we see that, that one of the Ammonites was actually living in the Jewish temple. We talked about 
Tobiah a lot in the first few chapters. And now Nehemiah comes back several years later, and this guy is living in the Jewish temple. He was mortified at that. Eliashib, who was the high priest, had given one of the storerooms, the guest room, to Tobiah in the temple. And this was hard for Nehemiah to wrap his head around. He couldn't believe it. This guy, was Tobiah, was an enemy of God's people, right? He had been allowed to live now in the headquarters of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah knew from that position, him being in that position, he would be able to have influence over everybody. So that's one of the first consequences of breaking the vow to, to not intermarry with pagans. Eliashib had, had become a traitor because one of his relatives was married to Sanballat's daughter, and Sanballat and Tobiah were friends. They were very close. And so through this whole book in Nehemiah, we, we remember, we've talked about it, Tobiah has, has been an enemy of God and a thorn in the side of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has dealt with him on a, on a lot of occasions and always made sure not to ever allow him inside of the walls. But while he was away for those several years, the high priest not only allowed Tobiah into the city, but he allowed him a, a place in the palace. He gave him the keys to the palace, so to speak, and, and, and let him stay in the place where the tithes and the offerings were stored. And so Eliashib had been trusted with this, this big, huge responsibility uh, but by pursuing wrong relationships, what he did was misuse his position as high priest, and he deterred the work of God. And now Nehemiah saw it for what it was, which was, number one, it was an offense against the holy God. That was number one. It was an offense against the holy God, and then it was an act of blatant disobedience to Scripture. Verse 7 says, ne Nehemiah called it an evil thing. For Tobiah to be inside the temple, Nehemiah said that it was an evil thing thing. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, I was, uh, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified, and, and, and I had the articles of the house of God restored there, along with a grain offering and frankincense. So this was an offense against God. Like I said, it was an offense against the Holy God, but it was such an offense that it required drastic, public, and immediate action. And that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. He showed Tobiah the door, he threw his, he, and he threw all of his junk out in the street, his TV, his computer, all of it, his recliner. It was all gone. He threw it all out in the street. He said, look, you ain't got to go home, but you can't stay here no more. And then he ordered all of the rooms be cleaned and purified. He wanted every trace of Tobiah out of the temple. He wanted it removed from the temple. Nehemiah couldn't live, listen, he couldn't live with wrong in a place that was built for right. You can't live with wrong in a place that's built for right. So the first separation vow they broke was, was this, allowing a pagan unbeliever to take up residence in the temple. The second separation promise they broke was to allow mixed marriages to take place. Allowing mixed marriages to take place. Remember the vow that they made in chapter 10, verse 30. It says, We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. Now drop down to chapter 13, verse 23. And following, I'm going to read. In those days I also saw Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them cursed them, beat some of them, their men, 
and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him a king over Israel, yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all of this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoda, son of Eliashib, the high priest, had become a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. So when he returned, when Nehemiah returned, he saw that the men from Judah had married these women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. He heard that their children were speaking these foreign languages. They no longer spoke Hebrew. That meant they wouldn't know how to read the law. They couldn't read or understand the law, and they couldn't participate in the temple services because they didn't speak the language. Their sins were damaging their home lives. Their sins were damaging their family lives. Just a few years before, when they were rebuilding the walls, chapter 4 says that, that, that the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod had plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. So I guess yesterday's enemies were now today's spouses. And that was something that flew all over Nehemiah. He was, he was hot. Look at verse 25. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. So by calling curses uh, down on them, he was pronouncing God's judgment on their actions. He was so mad that, and his anger was so intense that he, he smacked some of them. He pulled out some of their hair. Ezra and Ezra 9, uh, and I hope, remember y'all read Ezra. We all read it as we started this in Ezra 9. He faced a similar situation. If you remember, he pulled out his own hair. Well, Nehemiah didn't do that. He didn't pull out his own hair. He pulled out their hair, the ones that had fended, the, the lawbreakers. He pulled out their hair. That might seem violent. That might seem inappropriate to us. I mean, here, here's a man of God, right? Uh, a spiritual man of God, Nehemiah, one that God has been using. And all of a sudden, we see him resort to violence, slapping, hitting these men, pulling their hair out. But when we interpret it in the proper context, in the context against Israel's history, then it's easier for us to understand his feelings. This very sin, this, this intermarrying, this very sin was the primary reason that they were taken into Babylon ca captivity in the first place. Primary reason. He knew that the pagan women led their king into sin. And himself, Nehemiah himself, had personally experienced the results of Solomon's sin. That's why his grandparents had been carried off to Babylon. That's why he was a servant to King Artaxerxes. There was no way now that, that he wanted uh, God's judgment to fall on Israel again. So if God didn't tolerate it in Solomon's life, he certainly was not going to allow it now, right? Nehemiah reminded them of that, that, that history in verse 26. He said, didn't King Solomon of Israel uh, sin in matters like this? There, there, was, there was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king all of, over all of Israel, yet foreign women drew him into sin. So... We've seen the separation promise, the submission promise. Let's move to the third one now. The, the, broke, the next broken promise was the support promise. The support promise. This is, this is where they, they neglected to support God's work. Now, the final statement in, in chapter 10, if you remember back, it says that uh, we will not neglect the house of our God. 
We will not neglect the house of our God. But now we see that, that the ministry at the temple was hampered in verse 10 because the Levites and the singers had to get jobs in the fields just, just for them to survive. The storerooms in the temple were empty. They were empty because people had stopped bringing their tithes and offerings to the temple. That probably explains why Tobiah was allowed to live there because they were actually empty. You know, there was nothing to do with the rooms because people weren't bringing their tithes. But, so there was room for them. But, but here Nehemiah calls them to the carpet again for this. Verse 11, he says, So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? So what he does at this point, he rebukes them. But then he doesn't just rebuke them. He sets up a system uh, for them to, again, put God first in their finances. So he didn't just rebuke them. He showed them what to do to make it right. That's exactly what God's, God does for us, right? He wants the bad removed and the good restored. Right? He doesn't just want us to be sorry for our sin. He wants us to repent and turn from it and return to holiness. And Nehemiah, so what he did, he set up some systems so that the tithes would start coming back into the temple. And the temple officers who were in charge, says, it says that they had left their posts because there was nothing coming in or out. And so in verse 11, Nehemiah stationed them at their post. In verse 12, we see that people started again to bring their tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. So they renewed their commitment to put God first in their finances, and they brought to God what was rightfully his. Nehemiah then appointed, in verse 13, we see that he appointed four men to supervise and distribute tithes and offerings. Those men represented the priests, the Levites, the scribes, and the laymen. They were all different, but they all had one thing in common. What does it say they all had in common? Verse 13, what, huh? That's it. They were all considered trustworthy. They were all con so when we go flat ourselves spiritually, where's one of the first places it shows up? In our giving. When we go flat spiritually, it shows up one of the first places is in our giving. Jesus put it this way. He says, for where your treasure is, there's where your heart will also be. So just like the Israelites, they renewed their commitment to honor God in their giving. You and I need to, to do an honest assessment of ours. Are we putting God first in our finances? It's an honest question to ask yourself. I'm not looking for an answer. I'm asking you to ask yourself. Are we putting God first in our finances? So they broke the separation promise. They broke the, the submission promise, the support promise. Now let's, let's look at the last broken promise, which is the Sabbath promise. The Sabbath promise. So they signed this covenant in chapter 9, and when they signed it, they promised not to do business with the Gentiles on the Sabbath day. They, they, they made that clear in chapter 10 as well. It says, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. And then chapter 13, 15 to 22, Nehemiah saw that they were not only doing business on the Sabbath, but they were treating the Sabbath just like it was any other day of the week. They broke in this fourth promise by secularizing the Sabbath. Verse 16 says that, that there were men of Tyre who were actually moving into Jerusalem and setting up their own businesses. The leaders there had just allowed them to operate seven days a week like there was no issues at all. And so just like these other promises, Nehemiah didn't sit back and ignore this one. He didn't sit back and ignore the other three. He had some harsh words for them. He spoke and he was firm with them. He instituted some steps as well, but first in verse 15 he rebuked them. 
And he rebuked the Jews who were working and selling on the Sabbath, and he made them stop. And then he rebuked the leaders for allowing the businesses to move in on the Sabbath. He reminded them that violating the Sabbath was one of the reasons for their captivity in the first place. Look at verse 18. He says, didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all of this disaster on us and on this city? And now you're rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So the third step that he did here was practical. He ordered that the, that the, the city gates be shut on the Sabbath. And then he put some of his own very own guards on duty in verse 19. He ordered that the Levites... He ordered them to, to set a good example and to minister to the people in verse 22. This command of keeping the Sabbath, the keeping it holy, was, it was not meant to be a chore. God never demands anything from us that, that's not for our own good. Amen? So when, when they ignored the Sabbath, they were or damaging their, their spiritual, their physical, and their social lives. So those were the the four promises they broke and the steps Nehemiah took to, um, to, um, to remedy them, to, to rebuke them, to, to, to bring them to a place of, of repentance. But um, I want to wrap up, and as, as we wrap up, take the next few minutes, I want to talk about some of the things um, that I've learned, how I've grown through, through this book. So the top ten things that, that, that I took from, from Nehemiah uh, and you can write these down. Your top ten might be different, but I just want to go through some of the some of the big things that I took out of this this book. Um, the lessons I learned. The first one: it's never too late to do what's right. It's never too late to do what's right. Even though God's people had messed up pretty bad, it didn't disqualify them from service, service or it didn't ruin their relationship with God. So listen to me. Don't let your past keep you from doing what's right. It really doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is where you be, that, that you begin right now and renew your walk with God. Amen? So it's never too late to do what's right. The second lesson that I learned, don't play around with sin. You, you can't sin, kill Jesus. You can't play with it. You can't. Nehemiah dealt with it decisively and abruptly. Most of us underestimate our own sinfulness and overestimate our own goodness. Listen, you can't flirt with sin. You can't do it. Don't, don't get comfortable with compromising. You can't do it. Romans 12, 9 says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So don't play around with sin. Number, number three, remember who God is. Remember who God is. He's great. Right? He's awesome. He's good. Even when bad things happen to us, he's still good. Right? That's what we fail to realize is we can praise God all day long as long as our lives are going the way we want them to go. You know, he's good. He's great. God is wonderful. But just as soon as I lose my job or just as soon as I lose my house or my car or I get sick and get cancer, oh, wait a minute, I'm not so quick to praise God as good. No. Guess what? Even in those situations, he's still good. He's sovereign over everything. He's gracious. He doesn't, listen, he don't treat us the way we deserve to be treated. We think, well, my family member shouldn't get cancer, or I shouldn't get this cancer. Why me, God? Why me? I don't deserve this. No, you don't deserve the grace and mercy he's given you every single day. You deserve 
just like every one of every one of us sinners deserves the wrath and judgment of God upon us. We all deserve it. We don't deserve for us to for us to be treated the way He's treated us. But what does He do? He extends His grace and His mercy to us. So remember who God is. Number four, cultivate a lifestyle of praise and prayer. Cultivate a lifestyle of praise and prayer. God desires us to worship him how? With what? With joy. He desires us to worship him with joy, individually in our own individual lives, but also corporately when we come together. And as we do, we should cry out to him and confess our sin. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago about how unconfessed sin hinders our fellowship with God. Sure, he knows our sin. He knows what every one of us have done wrong. He knows it. But praying and asking God to cleanse us from all we've done wrong, not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. Every sin is an offense against God, an offense against a holy God. So our confession should be specific, not general. Don't say, God, forgive me where I failed you. Cleanse me of all my sins and everything I've done. No, be specific. Tell him the sin that you, tell him to kill the pride in your heart. Tell him to kill the lust that just won't leave you. Every bit of it, every sin is an offense against a holy God. And every time that we confess specific sins just draws us closer to him. It draws us closer to him. When we pray, we should pray doctrinally, but we also should pray continuously throughout the day. All day, every day. They don't have to be long, drawn-out prayers. They just small prayers to God all day, continuous conversation with our Lord. So cultivate a lifestyle of praise and prayer. Move out of your comfort zone is the next one. Move out of your comfort zone. Most of us are, are way too comfortable with the way we're living. We tend to default to, to the things that are predictable and the things that are easy. But what does God want? He wants us to be available to him. When God asks us to do something that stretches us, we need to be ready to move. It's hard sometimes. I know it for, for myself. I'm, I know it, just being transparent. It's hard when you know what God's asking you to do, and it's stretching you and moving you out of your comfort zone. It's hard to be obedient. Uh, but, but listen, serving him's not always easy. And the circumstances of serving him rarely are what we want them to be. Right? We want to put God in this box. We want him, God to come into our lives and fit into our plans and where we want to go with our lives. And guess what? He don't work like that. God is going to bust up everything you feel that's comfortable. Because stretching you and moving you outside of your comfort zone, that's how you're going to do more for the kingdom. If serving, if you're serving, if you serving God, if you're serving isn't causing you to sacrifice, and I'm going to tell you something, it's likely not for God or from God. God calls your service to be sacrificial. It do, he does. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't say just take up your cross and follow him only when it's convenient for your life or when it's easy for your life. He says take up your cross and follow him by doing what? Denying yourself. Denying yourself.